Hello, and welcome to another episode of It's in the Experience, an original podcast series produced by the Association for Experiential Education. I'm Sherry Bagley, Executive Director of AE and host of It's in the Experience. With me today are Dr. Anita Tucker and Tony Alvarez, longtime friends, colleagues, and supporters of experiential education in many different ways. Since Anita's mid-20s, she has been involved in the world of experiential education and in particular, adventure therapy. She teaches graduate research classes and AT facilitation, and these skills are highlighted in her 40-plus peer-reviewed publications on adventure therapy. As a licensed clinical social worker, she has experienced running adventure therapy programs with youth involved in the foster care, mental health, and juvenile justice systems. As a scholar, Dr. Tucker believes in the importance of research practitioner partnerships so that research is applicable and meaningful to the clients with whom we serve. She finds immense joy in collaborating with adventure therapy practitioners and students. Tony Alvarez has a 40 plus year career in adventure and experiential practices. He has worked as a school social worker, a social work professor, and as a consultant. He serves as the University of Michigan's point person for the use of experiential adventure and wilderness approaches to social work practice. His research focuses on the design of effective experiential and adventure-based programs for social workers in multiple settings and with diverse populations and in community-based youth empowerment program development. His life is guided by the seven adventure beliefs, which we hope to hear about those on this podcast, and he strives daily to walk that talk. Tony and Anita, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. So what we've been starting each episode with is some commonalities. And so commonalities is an initiative that facilitators often do. I don't know if you all have played it. I'm, I'm sure you have in all of your many years. But what are some commonalities that the two of you have? Mm. Mm. Catches lobsters and I crave them. That's true. Come visit me on the coast of Maine. We can bring you out to catch some lobsters. I think Tony and I really believe in the power relationship. Take you kind of develop those. Yeah. We're both fun people and really value laughter and enjoy the company of others. We also like quiet walks, especially along the beach or in the woods. Just quiet time to catch up. We both are family-centered folks, and so there's a lot to talk about, about partnerships and children and all the things that come with that. Yeah, it's a true statement. Family first, for sure. Anita and I both are teachers. We like to teach practice, and, and I think that really resonates for our students. And so I think we're both pretty loved by our students. That's, a, I think, a commonality that I can say. No, I love my students. They're the best. They're why I do it. We do it for the students who then will impact and impart their work on the clients that need their services so much. So, yeah, you pretty much know where you stand with us, if you know us. Pretty, We pretty much wear ourselves on our sleeves, that's for sure, which I love because then I know where Tony is and it's not spending emotional energy trying to figure out where Tony is or what's going on for him. That's not who we are. I would say the common thing about Tony and I is that it doesn't matter what space we show up, we kind of show up in the same way wherever we're at, whether that's work, family, with our students, or in the community. This is kind of what you see is what you get. The good, the bad, and the ugly.
Great. Lots of commonalities for you all. So we've mentioned adventure therapy in the introductions. That is maybe something that needs defined for folks out there. What would you say is your definition of adventure therapy? There's the textbook version and then there's the longer, more driven out version. But I do believe um, adventure therapy believes in the power of experience and the experiences and how we intentionally guide clients to experiences of everyday life or in the clinical setting. But it's the intention and the matching and the choice of the activities to meet clients where they're at to guide them through change and really meeting clients where they show up at. And the adventure part is the activities. Those are our tools of the trade. So if we had to define it, the adventure activities themselves are the tools of the trade. And we as facilitators are really guides with our clients who walk with them in the journey towards therapeutic change. And we meet them where they show up and we guide them where they need to go. And we are not the experts in our clients' lives. We try to show them how they have the expertise and build on what they already show up with. But yeah, the tools of the trade is the adventure experience and we're the guides of that process. When I think about adventure, I think about challenge, right? Passion and excitement and doing and, and all that kind of stuff. And so when I put adventure with therapy, in a way, there's a little redundancy in my head because therapy is really challenging and it's hard work. And so it is already in and of itself an adventure. And so on the one hand, Adventure therapy is about the use of, in my head, aside from activities, but just whatever tool is accessible that can be used to move people in the direction of their goals and wishes. We move them both physically and emotionally, right? So this idea of kinesthetic whole body engagement to unlock parts of us that somatically we might not be able to access in a more one-on-one -on -one talk setting. That's sort of the premise is this idea that we are complicated whole beings and just staying cognitively or just staying emotionally or just staying behaviorally limits us in the areas that we can grow and help clients change, right? So we talk about affect, behavior, cognition, and somatic and adventure, like engaging all four areas. Not maybe at all at the same times, but we have access to those four areas through the use of adventure. I was recently listening to a Zoom dissertation defense from one of our colleagues, a Latina woman, and the question from her committee was, she was asked about like why she thought that adventure as a model of practice would be effective with the Latinx community, Chicana community. And as I was listening to her, I was thinking, it's exactly what works with many and all cultural groups because the beauty about adventure work and adventure therapy work is that is that piece of matching. And if we broaden our mindset so that we really can use anything and everything, it invites movement. Then, you know, for many cultures, food is so critical and it's a way to open the hearts. So that has to come into the room. And so if you're in Hawaii, people talk story. And so if you talk story, it invites an environment of comfort and safety, and then good therapy work can happen, right? So language is really a good thing. And there were times when I was running groups where I worked with one time in particular, I worked with a group of Middle Eastern kids, mostly Arab kids, and then uh, some Mexican kids. And 
at some point during the game we were engaged in, I started hearing Arabic being spoken. And so I stopped the group to invite people to reflect on what their speaking of uh, in Arabic was doing to the cohesion of the group, where half of the group spoke mostly Spanish. Was that inclusive or not? And invite that conversation. So any tool can be used to really invite people to do insight work. And the activity invites people to show up as they are in the moment, which is like the trick of the trade. I mean, I always make the joke is like, if you sit down as a family and play a game with your family, it is assessing. You will know exactly how a family operates by just sitting them down with Monopoly or or some or risk or some sort of board game, you know. So those sorts of ideas of how when we're engaged in shared experiences, we show up. And that is so much information for us to use and build upon both things that work and then stuff that maybe worked for a while. Like, you know, one of the things Dr. Beale, our colleague, always tells us, and we've been really integrating that is like, we need to stop punishing folks for having trauma reactions. So when people show up in the therapy setting, one of the things we're really working on is instead of looking at, you know, all behavior has meaning, all, they've adapted. People have adapted to survive to where they are. And currently, if they show up at our door, it may or may not be adapting to be helpful in their current context. And so they show up and, and we say that. But, you know, this idea that suspending the judgment and really being like, all right, so this is how you show up. Is that working? And if it is, great. And if it's not, well, what are some other options? And providing an opportunity to practice those skills in a safe environment or not maybe a brave environment. We don't necessarily know if we can create a safe environment, but a brave environment that they can practice new skills so that they can transition those skills of communication, assertiveness, cooperation, asking for their needs in an appropriate way being vulnerable, talking about feelings, they may never talk about feelings or even goal setting. Those things that we don't spend time necessarily intentionally on, but adventure allows us to do that. It's really powerful if done right. So it sounds like we've touched on a couple experiential education principles when you're talking about adventure therapy. How does adventure therapy fit into experiential education? What is that connection and why do we say that it's part of experiential education? And it just is. I mean, it, it's learning by doing. I mean, it is. It's experiential learning. I think therapy is learning about each other, the community, ourselves, the world, and experiential learning is adventure therapy. I mean, it's the whole platform is how do we learn and grow through experience? And that's what it is. The work yeah. that we, many of us in the adventure therapy field are grounded, ground our practice in the thinking of our approach using the facilitated wave model. And in that model, People started an A and they moved towards a B, right? That's B as the outcome. And Tony, explain what A is. Oh, so A is sort of where people begin. So when you're starting with a group, when a person first shows up for therapy, when a person goes into a, an experiential classroom, when they go outdoors for the first time, led by a guy like that, right? That's the A part. And then the B part is like they're there to get through the spider's web. They're go, going for a hike. They're going into a cave, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So the idea being that person at A has this B in mind to, to get into the cave, to climb that tree. And so experiential education is doing it, right? Getting there. And if you just change the B from getting to a cave to getting insight into your depression, then that becomes therapy. 
the process is the same. So it's experiential education with an outcome of personal change. Those point A and point B, they just guide us, right? So the way we assess or we, we look at people when they show up at point A is going to be a little different if I'm a clinician and I'm doing clinical work than if I am at a challenge course and I have a school group there just to build resiliency and communication skills. Same skills, different sort of focus. And so that's why facilitation skills become so key, not only clinical skills, but facilitation skills like the understanding of the dual training it's really important in adventure that dual training of understanding facilitation how you show up the skills you need to guide that process as well as all all the clinical skills that come with understanding assessment and, and how change occurs and i need mean, those clinical skills are the important part adventure therapists are licensed typically they have they have some kind of social work or therapist credentialing from so eight. so they they might be on their way to license so you know, I just want to be really clear. Um, we're going to be U.S. centric, you know, so it's it, it's different internationally. And so I don't want to misspeak for how it works internationally, depending on the country or the context. But in the United States, therapy is done by mastered levels, whether it's psychology, social work, licensed mental health counseling, marriage and family therapy, addictions folks, right? Master's level clinicians who may be going towards their license. Licensure happens. You have a certain amount of hours that you're supervised and then you sit for licensure. And that's different depending on the 50 states you live in, but still kind of the same process that... So master's level clinicians, some who may be licensed, some who may be supervised. But yeah, that's the, at least in US centric folks, just to be clear. And there are some states that give license to folks with bachelor's degrees. Yep. And that leads to the question, how did you get involved in adventure therapy? Tony, I know you said your degree was in chemical engineering. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's kind of a different step than uh, adventure therapy. How did you get involved in adventure therapy? I think for me, coming to the U.S., immigrating to, U to the U.S. in 1970, and then sort of working, my wife and I were doing social work already then and doing a lot of community organizing and finding like we worked in Louisiana with mostly African-American families. We worked in Vermont. We worked in different places and found that the work that we were doing involved a lot of experiential stuff without really knowing that that's what it was, but just that we were doing a lot of things with the clientele, the client population that we were working with. And then I got into the MSW program and got my master's degree and, and started practicing as a school social worker. And I found that early on in my career, I found that the talk therapy that I was doing just didn't fit for me. The beauty about this work is that it has to fit with you. You know, so some people are really good at sitting behind a desk and engaging people in intense, wonderful work. And in consulting with a colleague at the University of Michigan, who didn't know about adventure work, but knew about like structured experiences for the middle management in the corporate world. That was her expertise. But she had books that she shared with me that had these activities. And so uh, I started practicing with those activities and found that kids got engaged. The, the clients that I was working with really sort of got engaged in the process of social work and getting to know each other. And and that kind of stuff. And so for probably the first seven years of my career, from that point on, I just kept developing activities, uh, thinking that I had to make do with whatever I could come up with. And again, growing up in the Philippines, 
a lot of our play had to do with making games up. We didn't have Monopoly and things like that. We had banana trees and coconut trees, and we cut the leaf of the banana tree, and then that was our sword, and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So creativity has always been sort of front and center for me. And, and so it, it felt easy to create experiences for the clients that I worked with. And it was only like in 1985, I think, when... I had a, a student who was doing field experience work with me from the School of Social Work, who watched me run my groups and then said to me, oh, you do adventure work. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. And so that guy told me he had been, he had come from North Carolina, had been an outward bound, and there was a project adventure that had trained his staff in this hospital. And they had these books, Islands of Healing, and... <laughs> And, you know, whatever. And it was like, oh, so I was really thrilled that I had like found my people, but I also was like a little annoyed that it took seven years to do that. And I didn't have, Carl Ronke already wrote up all these activities. <laughs> I didn't have to create them. They were there. So anyway, that was the beginning for me. And so I went and got some training. And, and the more I did that, the more I really just got enmeshed in the field. And my journey was not one where I didn't have mentors. There, there, were, there was nobody around in the late 80s in Michigan who knew about adventure. And so you were one of the first doing it. To kind of, yeah, sort of like create it along the way. And then I found this guide down the road for me, turned out in Michigan, who was also doing adventure work, a parallel sort of growth. And oh, that was Gary Stoffer. And at some point in 89 or 90, we connected. And then from then on, it was just like, full on. And then Anita came into the picture. Yeah, 95. Yeah, before she tells her story, I just want to say, up until 2007, the classes that I taught at the University of Michigan were all like regular interpersonal practice courses. I taught the class on school social work and like how, how to become a school social worker and things like that. And so I talk about that time period as being in the closet. I was an in-the-closet adventurer. I couldn't call my classes adventure. I had to do these, you know, individual practice or group work practice and stuff. And then within it, I infused adventure practices. So sometime at that point, I was teaching a class. And Anita Reithofer. Yeah, I was. Well, it's funny, you know. There's still some folks who are not labeling what they do in master's and social work programs because of the fear of the unknown. And that's still going on in 2023, which is unfortunate. I was 25 years old and I always wanted to do a Northern Outdoor Leadership School or an hour bound trip. And I chose a Knowles 28 day trip. And so I just come off that trip and entered my master's in Ann Arbor. And Tony's was one of the first classes I took a school social work class and he had us doing what we know so well as river crossing. I remember thinking he was nuts. He had taken the mats from his car. He had two end crates and he had a two by four and a few other things as the tools to cross the river. And he had a rope in one place and a rope around. And he said, use these tools. So I'll explain the activity. It's basically, you start from, it's a transitioning or a journeying activity where you start from one position and as a group, you move. So we were in a field next to the school social work building and he had a rope out with tar mats, milk crates and a two by four. And he said, listen, you can't touch the grass. 
And you need to, as a group, take you and all of your tools that you need on your journey for being a school social worker from this point to that point. And then he processed with us, what kind of tools do you need metaphorically? And so the two by four became collaboration and the milk crate became self-care and some of the car mats became supervision or whatever we would need. And we named them all. And then we, as a group, tried to take us and all these mats by keeping a connection with them. You needed to be touching them or standing on them. And if you lost connection with the tools and supports you needed, they would kind of be taken away and you'd have left tools and supports to be able to travel across this area. And I was like, what is going on? This is graduate school. But it was so cool for me because it made sense to me coming right off my knolls and understanding. And then I was just drawn to him because Tony's Tony and he's very charismatic and he takes time for his students. And then I just became passionate. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my life. This is where I'm going to go. And so I probably bugged him more than he wanted a student to bug him. But he was always gracious and lovely. What I always tell a story about me and Tony is Tony has no idea at the moment the impact he had on me. Because he was just treating me like any other student. And I always want to remember that when I'm working with students is like care and compassion, even though for me it might be minimal effort. It's just me being me to that recipient could make or break their graduate degree. And Tony really made or broke. I mean, he really made my graduate journey and opened up a whole area of practice that I didn't know existed by actually letting me come in and talk to him and letting me brainstorm things off of them and let you know that idea of being open to and challenging him and saying well i disagree and what would you do here and those sorts of conversations we had and i was 25 years old and he was in his 40s and we you know it was this it was just a really great relationship and i was passionate about it and i wasn't gonna let it go and now it's 30 years later and i've never let it go but that sort of triggered me and the interesting part of it is like he springboarded me but there was no path Tony was right. There was no path to do what I wanted to do. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get my doctorate. I really wanted to get my doctorate, but I wanted to specialize in this area because I wanted to teach. And there's lots of things going on. And so I literally drove my car from Boston College, where I ended up leaving Michigan to go to Boston College, up to Project Adventure. And I said, I want to intern for you. And they were like, what? I'm like, I have my master's. I want to intern for you. And over the summers, what Tony sparked to me while I was getting my master's, over the summers, I ended up working at a camp doing ropes course stuff. And the director of the camp was awesome. And he's like, listen, if you come back, I will give you a workshop. I'll pay for your workshop at Project Adventure. If you come back next summer, I was like, deal. And I was in Massachusetts. So I did an adventure-based counseling workshop. And then when I finished my master's, I literally went to PA and said, take a chance on me. And they sent me across the way to this tiny little, literally it was a trailer on the property. And I met Jim Scholl who wrote the book Islands of Healing. And he took me on as his intern in, in the fall of 97. So I went from Tony to Jim Scholl and then from Jim Scholl to working in adventure. And then that's where I met Mike Gass because Mike Gass was regional and he used to come train my clinicians. And Tony would fly out. I mean, Tony and I were still friends. I was doing research in Michigan, so I would hang out with him and Gary. And then he would come present at regional conferences and train my staff. I mean, when, when the Northeast region had their conference in St. Andrews, Tony came in with all my North Star staff. And I mean, they were all playing games and Tony and I are trying to prep our workshop as they're playing fun games. And we're like, no, we have to prep our workshop. So it just kept going over the years. And then all my clinical work ended up being at that organization until I decided that maybe I should finish my PhD. So I had to like go down to part-time because I was doing all this clinical work, but my doctorate was not being completed. So then I hunkered down. It took me nine years to finish. I laugh about it. But I finished and then ended up at UNH 
It's an amazing accomplishment. Had a kid, my husband yeah. deployed, you know, lots goes on during your PhD. So you bring up Tony using car mats and, and milk crates. This is a complete aside question, but what is the weirdest thing you've ever used as a prop in an initiative? That's a really good question. Well, I mean, you don't need a prop. You got to remember, you can do it all without anything, too. So you do it all without props. Yep. Do it all without props. Rubber band. And that's true. Ponytail holder. Yeah. Probably my most enjoyable assessment tool, the four corners, started because I had long ponytail and my hair was kept back with a ponytail holder. And I took that out to demonstrate the flexibility of the ponytail holder. And that this is you inside this rubber band and things stress you out and they stretch and then they de-stress and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. And then I created another activity using a rubber band to set goals, flinging rubber bands around. <laughs> I can't take credit for this, but my graduate students literally two weeks ago used potatoes, red potatoes. And what they did, it was so brilliant. And um, Lauren and John, I'm going to give a shout out to my two grad students who literally took these red potatoes and had everyone grab one and look at it, you know, and they were all potatoes really for this idea that we're all different, but we're all the same. And we put it back in the middle and they, they said, can you find your potato? And then you had to go find your potato, but use each other. And it was just an amazing example of, you know, the metaphoric power of adventure. But yeah, they came in and they put red potatoes in the middle of the circle. And I, and I was at that point, half of my classes, I facilitate with a, with a gra another graduate student and the other half is graduate students facilitate us. And this was part of their facilitation. It was pretty amazing. But yeah, red potatoes. And it was really powerful when all the metaphoric learning from these red potatoes. And then I'm like, is someone going to make food with these? And someone took them <laughs> and cleaned them all and made some food with them. But yeah. I want to go back to sort of how, like how we got into adventure and stuff and, and the takeaways from that, because I think it's just really insightful to me to think about what then happened to both Anita and me. And I think I've become a, a good mentor for a lot of people and really sort of intentionally show up at AE and TAPG and other places with the intention to connect with as many people as possible. I remember the old days at AE when I would come in and, and ooh and ah that, you know, people could go and chat with Carl Rocky or hang out with, you know, Tom Smith, or, right? The elders of the community. But it also felt like they were really not reachable by us local people kind of stuff. And then that changed because I got to know Carl and I got to know Raccoon and they were wonderful people. But the idea that there are people at AEU come and they know some of us from the books we've written or because we've been facilitating presentations and stuff and just feel like, they don't have access to us. And so I found myself at least being intentional about reaching out, letting people know I was available and, and really being available. My office at the School of Social Work was always open. People could come in and out to check with me and talk with me. When I left being a school social worker at a middle school where my door was always open and always full of kids coming in and out, uh, as I was leaving that job, I felt that that was going to be the saddest thing would be that I would not have that kind of an office structure anymore. And then it happened at the School of Social Work with graduate students who like turned out to be just as needy more or less as the middle school. 
<laughs> in terms of, oh, there's somebody who's here is willing to talk to me and can, you know, I can ask about the, anyway. So that idea of let's be available to people that are new, because when I was growing up in adventure, I didn't have mentors. And so it just seemed like it really was important to offer a mentorship when asked, right? And interestingly, Anita, just from how you were talking about your story, Anita, you had to intentionally find, you know, not just bushwhack anywhere, but like find the people that would get you to where you wanted to go. You knew your B, but there was certainly no path. And it wasn't bushwhacking. It was like, there's a fish over there. I'm going to go there. There's a person over there. I'm going to go, right? And that's what you do now. It's amazing when I see you at AEE or when we're hanging around, you're like the resource mobilizer and the reason, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is what you need. Go over there. Go, just tell that person, Anita said hello. And, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's just amazing. I love knowing so many people, right? That's the beauty of our, our association is that like, I may not have the answers and most of the time I don't, but I know someone who might. The resource piece of connect. Well, again, Tony and ours connection, it's relationships. I build a lot of relationships with a lot of people because I just think the people who do this work are amazing. They all do it for different reasons, but we all come with the intention of making the world just a more just and humane place to live. I mean, that's one of the values of the association, and that's why we come together at AE, which really is that social justice piece. And I got to do my own work, and I got to, you know, I'm growing as a human. I'm, I'm, I'm flawed, but man the relationships that I forge and, and I get so much back from that, you know, it's a service, but what I get back is tenfold. And I think Tony can say the same is, but there is intention, you know, like when I go to conferences, I'm exhausted. I usually room with Dr. Christine Norton because she's one of my best friends, kind of Tony has his Gary and I have Dr. Norton. And, and when we go home, we usually stay together in a room and we don't go into the group houses and that's not because we're not social. If anyone knows her and I, we're very social humans, but the output at an AEE conference for us is immense because we intentionally show up with the goal of trying to connect with as many people and connect them to others and check in with people and provide resources and, you know, the, oh, I have this interest in research or, oh, I want to be an adventure therapist. Oh, I want to work at this wilderness program. And all those questions are super valid and super important from really simple questions to long, hour-long conversations around the state of our field and what are your views on this controversial topic, which we'll engage with in the moment. But when we get home at night, we're just like exhausted. And it's interesting. What we learned as we got older, we're like, we need to be able to go home, close the door and, and go to sleep and refuel so that we can be there for the next day. But the emotional and physical output of those conferences, I, I would go home and just be so exhausted. And I'm like, I didn't climb Everest. What did I do? And then Christine's like, our output is an enormous. I want to take a moment to talk about this um, super group you all have made. It's like you're, you all are like the traveling Wilburys or the high women or, you know, you're the super group. Of um, the four women with two dudes, but we should yeah, adventure. You're a group of adventure therapists, and you've written one book already, and you're working on yep. a second. Can you talk about how that first book came about and how the second one's going? I'm going to take this, Tony, and you can add. But so when I started with him in the 90s, he was always talking about the model him and Gary created. And so you got to remember, I'm also working with Jim Scholl, who is editing his Islands of Healing for Exploring Islands of Healing. And 
he's got a wave model that's a little different than their wave model. And so this conversation around this experiential wave model, the facilitated wave model, which is what Tony and Gary had developed. And then it was so powerful as a social work learning tool. Like it just made sense because context and environment were the key to creating meaningful change, right? So the the attention we pay to our environment and as social workers who are guided by how the environment impacts the clients we work with, you cannot just look at their individually. You have to look at meso and macro levels as a model. It just made sense. So like I would teach everyone at North Star about the model and we would present on it. And then he would teach him and Gary, think about all the people at Michigan they taught. So there was this whole posse. I don't even know how many people who came through their doors in terms of teaching who then taught. So it's like train the trainer or training the trainer. So when I got into academia, at some point I kept saying, we got to write the book. You guys got to write the book. And so then Gary and Tony started, they, they wrote a couple of chapters. They shopped it around. Life happened. And so then I was like, we're going to write the book and I'm going to, so I applied for this. Remember that grant I applied? I tried to apply for a grant to buy me out of a full semester so I could write the book and I didn't get it. So I was all bummed. And then Gary and Tony, they had written Power of One and the Power of Family with Maury Lung. And so they had said, well, we should get together because they had already written a book. So there was like this conversation that they were having. And then Gary goes, we have to talk to Anita because like, we had had 10 years, like the three of us, Gary, Tony, and I have had breakfasts together. I mean, we have been talking about writing this book for like 10 years, and I'm in a tenure-track academic. There's no time. I mean, it, you're just so busy to write a book, and I was having sabbatical, so they were having this conversation over here, and Gary said, wait, we got to bring in Dr. Tucker, so then I came in, and then I said, wait, we got to bring in Dr. Beal, so all of a sudden, this group of Tony and Gary and Maury became Tony, Gary, Maury, Kim, Anita, and Dr. Beal. And so these six people, and it's Gary, Stoffer, Tony Alvarez, Dr. Maury Lung, Dr. Bobby Beal, Kim Sockstetter, and myself. And it was three different parallel processes where we all said, let's just come together. And they're like, let's self-publish. I was like, no way, we're going to put a book proposal in and get it you know, into Rutledge. And so I feel like the story was many, many years because their models 30 years in the making. And then it's 10 years of conversations with no movement with the three of us. And then it just happened. And in that same role that Anita is in terms of like resource mobilizing and, and connecting people with what they need, she really pushed the book and getting it published. Amazing efforts on her part to, to really make it happen. But more than sort of like the product of the book, it's hanging out with these people. I started AE in 88 or something like that in Lake Junaluska. So it's sort of like, I remember when Gary started coming to, after he and I connected, he and I started going to the Heartland region. I was the chair of the Heartland and I started bringing people from Michigan. So that's when Gary started attending AE conferences. He had not been to a national conference. He had gone to all these regional conferences. And Bobby Beal came into a Heartland when I was the chair, and then she slowly went up the, and then became the chair of the Heartland region. And so I knew her from a long time ago, sort of starting over there and, and just watching who, what the things that she was doing and learning and becoming. And then Kim Sachsetter had shown up at a TAPG or a regional, I don't remember. Probably regional, she's from Ohio. I would say it's probably started in the Heartland. Uh, Maybe yeah, not. Something, but... 
I remember her coming her first uh, conference and uh, Gary and I went up to her and said, oh, you have some real good energy. Why don't you come do co-present with us or do this or do that? And anyway, so there's history with all of them. Mm-hmm. I remember Mari Lung when I met her in Wisconsin, you know, and I think it was her first AE conference in Wisconsin when I happened to be doing some speech there also. But anyway, it's just that there's this history of like, beginnings of people to then sort of become these colleagues with a lot of amazing expertise. And so I had done, Maury came up to me at a conference. I had presented our research and she says, I have data. Can you help me? I mean, Tony and I worked, we did some work with his colleagues too, around the work that he does in, in the schools with autism. So like my role is always sort of being like, you're doing something really cool and the world really should hear about it. So how are you evaluating it? If you need help, let's do it. And then let's get it published because the world needs to learn of the cool stuff you're doing. And I'm still doing that. I just published the Chicago Voyager's data with Dr. Norton that Bernie was doing amazing work there in Chicago. And we're working with the Mountain Center in Santa Fe to get their amazing evaluation data done. And right before I got on this call, I was working with one of my friends who does sea voyages and the impact on sea voyages on resilience and so like there's just cool people doing cool stuff and i feel like my magic is finding them seeing them and then saying hey what do you need how can i support you your stuff needs to get out there because it just really is magical work that our colleagues are doing and i miss being in the field because i'm not doing one-on-one clinical work anymore i'm doing supervision and this is my way of keeping really apprised and my boots dirty because folks are doing amazing work out there and every day it's like do you know about this surf program in LA? And I found out about this other program that's in Vancouver. And like, you know, like every time we hear someone new, Dr. Norton's like, did you know this person? I was like, Tony, do you know these people? Like we're always trying to build a bigger boat and invite them in. Back to the six authors. These are experts in their own right. And so when we gather, often when we gather for like writing retreats, it's people that have written books (laughs) have said to us, there are six of you? What is that like, right? Because collaborative writing is really tough. But we have a flow that's just worked really nicely. It's like seamless. I don't know how we do it. Well, we do a check-in to make sure that we all get caught up on how everybody's doing. And that often is one whole afternoon and evening. And we allow it. And then Saturday morning, we wake up and it's like, we have a him who is our facilitator, and she facilitates us through getting to the tasks at hand. And then Bobby we, keeps us on target. Yeah, we look at the content. There are there are areas where we don't often agree or whatever, and so we and we are all able to speak our truths and challenge each other and get to a place where we can write something that we're all happy with. You got to remember, Sherry, there. You know, Dr. Gass has a theory book, and it's a great book, Dr. Gass, Dr. Russell, and and Dr. Gillis, but there's no practice book. So, like, our book goes great with their book. Their book is theoretical, all the theory behind. Ours is like, so here's the theory, but here's how you do it. We would do chapters. I would assign different chapters from different books, and there was Jim Scholl's work and, and Rich Maisel's work, but it was old, right? So it hadn't been updated. So there was a book that was out there, but was old. So hadn't been updated with all the new stuff because the last time it was, you know, 20 years old. So, you know, it was time and it's been amazing. Colleagues of mine who are teaching individual and group work 
and schools across the country are like, thank God for your book. I love your book, you know, because there wasn't anything there. We didn't do it for the money. I mean, I really thought once that book was published, I was like, I can retire tomorrow. You know, academically, I, I'm a full professor. I've, I've, you know, gone as far as I can go. I, I love my work. But this book, it was like birthing a child. But it was, it's my proudest accomplishment, I think, in my professional life is, is this book. It really is. And the next book, we're doing an individual adventure therapy with Rutledge. And, you know, that'll be like birthing another child. But it's, that's like sprinkles, though. Like, I already <laughs> had the cake. That's just sprinkles. The whipped cream on top of the Sunday. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So for somebody looking to get into adventure therapy, experiential education, what advice would you give them? To show up. Make friends? If you can find a way to show up, whether it's at a regional conference, whether it's an online webinar, and you can just show up, nine times out of 10, someone's going to reach out and say, hey, who are you and where are you from and what are you doing? And And I feel like we're not always on target. Like we, we have bad days as a community where we're not super on it. But most of the time, we're really intentional about inviting in and trying to invite in especially new folks and provide space. So if, if they can show up, like when people email me and I said, hey, we're going to be in Wisconsin or there's, you know, not only adventure or a wilderness therapy symposium or a regional AE conference or best practices, when I know there's people and I couldn't go to the Wilderness Therapy Symposium this spring. You should see the text message I sent my grad students of like, you need to find Maury Lund and you need to find Sandy Lewis, you know, and I, I told them who to go to and Kim Saxeter because they were all going to be there. And like the text message was this long to my eight grad students. These are you need to find because if you can show up, we can connect you with folks. There's nothing like getting to AE. Over the years, I've offered, you know, a day of adventure here in Ann Arbor and invited community members and students and former students, and they do adventure and parks and things like that to sort of nurture that approach and to invite people to think about it. But there's just nothing like getting to AEE. And I agree with Anita, it's it almost always, it's a place of open communication where people can ask the questions. And, and I think there's an intentionality that needs to come from the leadership to be reading the room for those newbies to really think about ways so that those folks and their needs are met, that their questions are answered. And I know over the years, there's been attempts at like, oh, let's have a new person gathering over here, or let's go over here to the restaurant together at lunch if you're new to this and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, to me, uh, and again, it's my experience, but to me, just reading the need or the room somehow is just really critical for those of us that are there that have been there a long time to just know to invite, to invite people into the experience. Uh, a colleague joined us at an AE TAPG event and he had been at many other conferences. He's like, this is the first conference I show up and the first thing you do is you norm how you're supposed to show up, the expectations for showing up. And he just was amazed that the first thing we did was not talk about content or what you're going to learn was going to be like, we have a group of expectations that we expect our community to show up as, and, and these are them, and let's have conversations around them so that we can then set that ground to then learn and provide, like, again, back to the environment, like adventure is all about creating that context and that environment. And when we attend to that environment, which you talk about all in all of the books is how do we attend to the environment? 
when we intend to the environment, that's where growth occurs if it's assessing the room, like Tony said. So and I'm pretty proud of the work that TAPG has done over the years and really trying to build that community. And some sacrificing because, again, the world is not fair and access is not the same in many places. So when I started connecting with people back home in the Philippines and helped them think about having the first experiential education conference over there, I called on my friends. I called on Chimo Sie from Taiwan and Anthony Chang from Hong Kong and, and called people and said, there's a conference in the Philippines. We need to be there. I have no money and they have no money. And these folks showed up and we all bunked in one small room, four of us uh, sleeping in pots that were pretty tough so that we could be there and sort of invite people into the, the adventure sort of story. And then they take it, right? Most of the folks that we gather with, they take it in the way that they want to take it. And, and so, Which I love because you never know it's going to show up, right? A non-deliberative form of, of work is like you create the environment and then you I wrote this article with Tony and a few others around non-deliberative nature of adventure therapy with Christiana Teen and Dr. Norton and in this idea that adventure is great. You set the context and then you just let it play out because you can't control it, right? But if you set the context, the clients are going to bring you, the group is going to bring you, the individual is going to bring you where they need to go. So you're not as deliberative. You provide a non-deliberative context, which I think is totally exactly what we do. Well, Anita and Tony, thank you so much. I've had an amazing time listening to you tell your stories and share your information. It's been fantastic, and I appreciate your time. I know you're both very busy, full live people. So thank you for being here, and thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of It's in the Experience. We hope you gained some knowledge about experiential education and had some fun, learned a new way to use potatoes. Join us each month to hear more stories and experiences from other voices in the community. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check out all of these great upcoming events that Anita and Tony were talking about, including the Best Practices in Venture Therapy Conference and AE's 51st Annual International Conference, lots of resources, and ways to connect with the community. All of these can be found at, at the Association for Experiential Education website, aee.org.